0: Today in Radical Personal Finance, it's live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Today is Friday, April 10, 2020, and today we do live q and I do these shows every Friday when I can arrange the technology, sit in my command center, and open up the phone lines. Works just like call and talk radio. A bunch of callers on the line, they call in, and we chat, and then you get to hear it. If you would like to join me for one of these Friday Q&A shows, I would invite you to become a supporter of the show at patreon.com slash radical personal finance. Again, you could sign up to become a supporter of the show at patreon.com slash radical personal finance. These Friday Q&A calls are available to patrons of the show and thank you to the many of you who support the show there. It really helps me uh, tremendously. I really am very grateful. We begin with, let's see, it looks like uh, finished. I got to close the music. Uh, there we go. Close the music. Tommy, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir?
1: Hey, uh, good afternoon, Joshua. Just had a quick couple questions regarding the uh, home equity line of credits.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: So the, um, we have a, a $60,000 available HELOC that um, is basically 0% loan as it stands, as long as we don't put it in our bank account. And then we'd obviously accurate interest, whatever that, that variable percent would be if we tapped into that. And uh, what market indicators should we watch for to to see if we need to put that money out of the standby and then into our bank account? And what would cause that to not be available funds?
0: What would you do with the money if you put it in your bank account? Nothing right now. So it's interesting. Um, the, the danger that you face with the HELOC is that At any time, generally, uh, every contract that I'm aware of, I try not to make absolute statements, but it's my understanding that uh, the danger that you face with a HELOC is at any time, the mortgage company that has provided the home equity line of credit can lower the line of credit that you have. They can do that if they're concerned about something changing in your borrowing profile. They can do that if they're concerned about something changing with the value of your home. Uh, This is similar, of course, to credit cards. I can have a credit card that has a $30,000 credit limit, and then the the credit card company can look down and see something that they just decide they don't like about my credit profile, and they can lower my available credit from $30,000 to $20,000. Now, they generally wouldn't do that without cause. The home equity line of credit company wants you to use the money because they want to sell the debt. They want to earn the interest. Uh, but the cause would be something like probably something like a change in your credit profile or a change in the value of the real estate. And so when you think about this as either a line of funding that you're planning to use for an alternative investment, or if you think about this as part of an emergency, the timing has to be before you need it for the investment or before you need it for the emergency. So the time to go ahead and get the money out is before you start going late on all your payments uh, because that would mess up your credit profile. Then they would see that in their computer, would flag it, and then the next thing you know, they would go ahead and lower your home equity line of credit. Or the time to use it would be when you wanted to have the cash so that you could move quickly uh, to you know, jump on a deal maybe you're planning to use this as a down payment fund for some other real estate investment. So all I can say to you is I don't know the specific triggers that you would look for. What I would look for would be uh, do I think that my use of it is going to be coming up in the next months? Uh, you know, is this six months kind of thing? And then what I'd like to do is I'd like to have the money sitting in my account, in my bank accounts, um, available for me so that even the money itself has a little time to season, sit in the bank account. So then I can use it for whatever my anticipated investment is or my anticipated emergency. The cost is relatively easy to calculate. Just take $50,000 and figure out what the annual interest rate is under the current interest rate. And you'll understand your your opportunity. You know the money that you're giving up in terms of interest. Uh, but I would want to have it set aside into a uh, into a um, into a bank account uh, before I needed it. Beyond more specificity, I can't provide. Is that 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 what you're looking for? Yep. Thank you. Anything else, Tommy?
1: Uh, one last question would be. Um, it, we've been getting emails from our mortgage lender, and apparently you don't really need to provide any proof of hardship. And we're at a 80% of our low uh, for the mortgage currently is going through the principal. Therefore, kicking that can down the road really wouldn't be too costly, even if we're just paying the interest only for two months on the forbearance. So they're offering, hold on one second,
0: hold on one second, let me just clarify. The mortgage company is offering you a forbearance program where you can make an interest-only payment on your mortgage without having to represent to them that you've lost income, without having to represent to them that you've experienced hardship due to coronavirus. Did I understand that accurately? Yes, that's correct. Okay, go ahead with your question then.
1: What's the downside? I'm just not seeing a, a really a downside because that just adds a couple mortgage payments, you know, back into the emergency fund. Yeah. And
0: uh, yeah, there's the, it, with what you described there, there's not really any downside. You'll be in, you know, you'll have a few extra months to pay, make your mortgage to pay your mortgage, uh, but that's probably not a big deal at this point in time. And so I would take it. Uh, I would take it and use the excess cash flow to pile up cash until we get through this. Time of emergency, however long it winds up being, and then go back to making full normal payments so that you can reduce the principal balance. But I would, I would take that deal all, all day long.
1: All right, Thanks, Joshua. My pleasure.
0: All right, we go now to looks like Mark in Canada. Mark, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today?
1: <coughs> Hi, Joshua.
2: Um, i just wanted to know. I mean, I know you haven't spoken too much about fire. Um, you know, fire movement uh, in general. Last wall, but. Um, just in terms of this uh, this whole pandemic, trying to position ourselves to uh, put ourselves back on on track. If the plan was based on a savings rate to be uh, financially independent in let's say ten years, um, and then having you know conceivably six to twelve months of not uh, of not being able to continue to make contributions to your to your investment plan, and then uh, just in terms of looking at how to take advantage of the situation or the, the declines in the stock market uh, to try to reposition ourselves? Or, or do you feel like this is just going to just put out an extra year or two to, to most people's plans and, um, and we just have to you know take our, take our lumps and carry on?
0: Well, I think the only reason why this particular – the major reason why this particular crisis that we're in would affect somebody's early retirement, financial independence, their FIRE plan is – if they lose their income or if their income suffers. Um, Beyond that, you know, if I've got a business that's just trucking along and I don't know what it is, maybe I run a grocery store or a local market and business is trucking along as normal, uh, if you can continue to get paid, then recessions, depressions, declines in the stock market represent an opportunity for you because they allow you to buy less expensive investment assets when you purchase those investment assets. The people who are being hurt are those of us who are having our income significantly affected. And, The extent of the damage will be uh, just simply based upon how big is the cut to our income and how long does it go on. Ideally, this crisis blows over quickly. I'm unconvinced that that's the case, that it's going to happen, but I'm hoping that that's the case, and I'm hoping that that happens. But um, for those who are pursuing a plan for financial independence and early retirement, I think this does just – I think it all comes down to do you lose income. I do think there are some opportunities here, and I'm going to – riff on what you said and i'll come back to you mark with with any follow-up questions but the first thing is there have been a lot of there have been some headlines kind of snarky headlines of people talking about well the the early retirement the fire movement is broken now because of uh because of the the current crisis i think that's silly i think that's totally silly uh because uh, the people who have been pursuing financial independence, early retirement, have developed a set of skills that work in good times and in bad times. The key skills are the ability to live on a small amount of your income, the ability to live frugally. That's extremely valuable. You know, the fact that I can live frugally when times are good allows me to be much more comfortable at living frugally uh, during difficult times. And so, that's a really a good skill to have, no matter what's happening. Uh, the ability to have lots of money saved. You know, people who are pursuing early retirement financial independence are generally going to as long as they're a few years into that plan they're going to have a lot more money saved than the vast majority of people whether it's in the stock market whether it's not they're just going to have more money and that positions them better than those who are living hand to mouth i think even just people having thought about people who are pursuing fire having thought about what they would do in early retirement possibly give them ideas about what to be doing right now. I've observed that a lot of people don't know how to be at their house. You know, they just don't have, they don't, they don't like their house. They don't like their family. They don't know what they want to do. And so in many ways, this, uh, home seclusion that we have is almost a good test case to say, here's what early retirement is going to look like. Now you can't go to the gym, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? Um, and so there's no downside to pursuing financial independence and the plan doesn't fall apart. The big risk that I do see that people should be very aware of is those who are entirely dependent on the stock market and who are developing a fire plan, right? An early retirement financial independence plan that is predicated upon the stock market um, giving a certain sequence of returns. Right now, what you see is do you see a complete collapse of you know the four percent rule? I don't think you see that at the moment. Um, I think at the moment. What we the data would indicate that this is this this could be a run of the mill bear market. That's what the hard data would indicate. Now, if you want to be a catastrophist and say, well, this is you know the entire world is going to collapse and all these stocks are going to go down, that's legitimate. Um, Are we going to have a V shaped recovery, a U shaped recovery, an L shaped recovery? I don't know. Um, I'm I'm more pessimistic, but uh, you know we don't know, we don't know. But what is so so. I'm nervous about people who make their entire financial independence plan based upon stock market returns. And I think you see the, the, the discomfort that can come if that is your investment plan, if that's your retirement plan. I prefer people to have multiple diversified asset classes that have multiple streams of income versus living entirely on a, a, a small stock market portfolio. The bigger danger, though, that you should take to heart is how tough this would be if this were the year that you started pulling on uh, investments. Um, fundamentally, the biggest risk with the stock market is the sequence of returns risk. If the first 10 years of your retirement are years when the market just collapsed, and now you were investing, investing, investing at high prices, but now you've got to pull money out and sell stocks at low prices, that really hurts you. Whereas if the first 10 years of your retirement are when the market is high, then you uh then you're 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 pretty good. And every year that you go on and you're living off of the stock market, you're you get a little bit safer. And so what I what I think is a good lesson that fire devotees should draw from this is the value of having a conservative plan, low withdrawal rates, the value of having multiple streams of income, multiple investment classes, and very importantly, the value of having income streams that come from labor or the ability to quickly pivot into income streams that come from labor in the early stages of retirement. And so if I were 40 years old and I just this, you know, January 1, 2020, I quit my job and I started living on my stock market portfolio, I'd be sweating bullets right now uh, because we don't know how long a bear market is going to last. We don't know how deep the bear market is going to be. And there's a very good chance that this one is going to be long and deep. Now. It's been a wacky week as I record this, and you know, there's there's wackiness all over the place. But if I had retired on January 1, 2020, I would feel a lot more comfortable if I had a plan of uh, very low spending for my first few years, maybe my first few years of retirement. In the future, I know I wanna spend $100,000 a year, but during the first few years of retirement, I had actually moved to Mexico where I could live very well on less money uh, or some variation of that, you know, lower than my my ultimate goal. And then I would like to have a job, a consulting gig, a little business, something that was providing me with income. Uh, and I think that, that this is a good test case for those scenarios. So those are my answers, Mark. Um, I'll unmute you here again. And any follow up? Did I answer your question, or, or you have any follow up to that?
2: Yeah, no. It was it was mainly kind of a you know I'd always had a plan to you know buy the dip and keep uh, regular monthly contributions, and then but if you if your industry or your business has been you know you know hit by this and you're burning through what you've been saving over the last few months, oh, yeah. uh, that you were supposed to put in the stock market, you're burning them up about that, keeping the lights on and the doors open. Um, so you know, if you like, you know, so this this strategy of of continuing by by the down, like I I anticipate that there's a good good chance that just around the same time that that the stock market is going up, I'll, that'll be about the same time where I can start putting contributions back in because you know when people start buying stuff and having access to things, I'll, I'll probably will have missed this dip. So I'm you know I'm wondering if there's any what your thoughts are about it when when there's a regime change if if you if you you know look at doing any kind of leverage investing if you have any. Any thoughts about how to take advantage of it if, uh, if the cash flow doesn't allow you to kind of carry on as you normally would?
0: I don't, I don't have any brilliant planning ideas there. I'm not willing to use leverage for stocks. I'm willing to use leverage for some other asset classes, but I'm not willing to use leverage for stocks myself. Uh, I don't like that. It's too dangerous unless you are extremely sophisticated and able to, to cover all your options. Um, but I, I'm not willing to, to commit to that. And I just say it's, just, it's unfortunate, but it's real, right? When, when our industries get, get decimated and when our incomes get hurt, I don't know of a magic solution to that other than to say, you know, it's it that's real life. That's the world we live in, and so none of us are promised a, a you know a perfect solution. Uh, I guess the best um, the best example that I would say, uh, kind of the best solution that I see, would be to say. To me, this is a reason why you first build a lifestyle that you don't want to retire from, because if you had just been planning that everything is going to be great, and I'm going to work, 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 and save money, and I'm going to work this job I hate, and in exactly 3.2 years, then I'll be able to retire, but what actually happened is your 3.2 years turned into 6.3 years because your income declined, then um, I don't like that. So I say first start by building a life you don't want to retire from and then save and invest because even if, you're, if you've are if you built a life you don't want to retire from and you're not desperate to escape from, then uh, I think that you can just use these times when your income is down, perhaps you're working less, use it as a, a, a stab at mini retirement, right? This is the time if, if, if you're not working, then um, go have some fun, right? Now that's hard right now with the whole world shut down to travel, but use it as a chance to work on those projects that you'd want to work on in early retirement so those are my thoughts all right we we'll go to pete in massachusetts welcome sir how can i serve, serve you today pete you're up all right pete let me mute. pete you're up all right we'll come back to pete later we go then to north carolina welcome to the show how can i
3: serve you today Hey, my name is David, and I have about $56,000 in my bank account, and I'm 18, and I was wondering what I can do to maximize that for the future.
0: Congrats, man. How'd you, How'd you earn all the money? How'd you get it?
3: Um, I've been working, and I also have it from inheritance from my grandparents.
0: Congratulations. So, at the moment, um, you have $56,000 in your bank account. Do you have any other investments, or this represents the vast majority of your, of your wealth at this point?
3: Uh, this is the vast majority, but I've been working on setting up a Roth IRA.
0: Okay, cool. The
3: past couple of weeks.
0: Now, obviously in a time of coronavirus, the world is a little bit um, um, messed up, but tell me a little bit about your plans for the next uh, next few years as far as you can see down the road.
3: Um, well, I'm going to college right now and that is paid for by my parents, so I don't have to worry about those expenses at the moment.
0: Good. And um, what are you studying?
3: I'm going to be studying um, business management with IT focus Okay, would be the end goal.
0: And when you think about investing, what kinds of things do you think you'd be interested in if you were going to invest?
3: I'm not really sure. So what I would
0: say is right now. I would um, I would just do nothing with the money. I don't think there's any reason why you have to do anything other than leave the money sitting in your bank account. Now, I'll give you a couple of, 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 of specific ideas to consider, but I want to start with the concept. Um, there is no reason to try to get rid of money just because you have it. And I think that that's something that you always need to to, to consider. There's no reason for you to get rid of money just because you have it. The basic skill set that you need to acquire to become wealthy and, and stay wealthy is to be comfortable having money. There are a lot of people who are simply not comfortable having money. As soon as they get money, they go out and they start spending left, you know, all over the place. Whereas other people are very comfortable having money. And so, waking up with $56,000 in your bank account is perfect. But now you've got to be comfortable having $56,000 in your bank account and recognize that it can just sit there and there's no reason for you to spend it. At some point in time, you'll want to do something with the money. And at that point in time, then you can start to think, is this a good idea? Um, You said you haven't – I'm going to pause in my my advice here. You said you haven't thought about any investing. But have you thought about something you'd like to do with the money?
3: I mean, I thought right now it might be a great opportunity to utilize that um, because – things are so weird currently I agree with you
0: but what what, what what would you utilize it for what are some of the ideas that you've come up with
3: I've I've been brainstorming but I can't really come up with anything that that amount of money would like help me with okay so because like, keep going go ahead well I if was you, gonna
0: say I, <laughs> we're talking over each other yeah. I will be quiet go
3: ahead uh, go ahead David I was going to say, I don't think with that amount of money, I could start necessarily start like a business that I could um, use for the future necessarily, or I don't know how to do that, I would say.
0: Well, the answer to that is, is going to depend on the business. And so the number one the number one problem you have right now in figuring out what to do with the money is simply that you don't know what you want to do. If you knew what you wanted to do, then the answer would be simple. So if you came to me and said, Joshua, what I really wanna do is I wanna start a lawn and landscaping company. Well, then the answer would be obvious you'd take you know three or four thousand dollars you'd go buy a, a, a truck you'd take another three or four thousand dollars go buy some lawn mowers um, another thousand dollars on weed eaters and, and miscellaneous equipment so you're in it for seven or eight thousand bucks of, of gear to have a you know really nice professional setup and you go out and start a business mowing lawns uh, and you could make that into a very profitable business uh, but the but the, the thing is you don't know what what you want to start if you said Joshua I really want to start a business uh, you know, a food truck business, well, then you'd use some of the money and you'd go and find a food truck. You'd, you'd uh, invest in whatever equipment you needed to run that food truck. And then you'd go out and you'd start the business. $56,000 is far more money than most people have to start their business. Most people bootstrap a business uh, and it opens up tremendous opportunities and tremendous doors to you. Uh, fifty-six thousand dollars is also money that could be spent in lots of other ways. You don't currently need the money for college, but a lot of people would spend the money at your age on college classes. Uh, I wouldn't myself. Um, I would go to college cheap. I generally think the value proposition for expensive college degrees is very, very low, but it's worth uh, it's worth considering if you might need it for a master's degree. You might need it for graduate school. Let's say that you were very interested. You start college. You study business. Then you you come across the fact that you're very interested in, uh, practicing law and you can parlay that $56,000 into a legal degree. That could be a really reasonable investment for you. If you really wanted to be a lawyer, you might come out of law school and move yourself into a position where you can make a few hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, even in the early years and then a lot more down the road. And so if you were really interested in it, then that would be a reasonable investment. Um, Everything is going to come down to what do you want to invest the money into? You could even persuade me to say, Joshua, I want to invest the money into life experiences. All right, I'm going to take the money, and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a a thirty foot sailboat, uh, fix her up her sailboat. I'm going to I'm going to uh, fix it up in my spare time while I'm going to school. Uh, so maybe I'm going to pay you know six thousand bucks for the sailboat, invest another five or six thousand bucks into gearing it up, and I'm going to keep the the money in my sailing kitty. And go and live off of, of some of this money for a few years while I sail the world as a as a young man, you know, as a solo sailor. You could convince me of that. You can convince me of a lot of things uh, that you wanted to do with the money. Um, the key is that you actually have an idea of what you want to do, and then we could talk about what's the best way to leverage it. What you'll need to think about, however, is just. What do you want? What do you want to do? And if you don't know what you want to do with the money, then don't do anything with it. Just sit on it. Just leave it in the bank. Um, there's no need to spend it. And if you sit on it for the next 10 years and it just sits in the bank, I think that's totally fine. Um, until you know what you want to do with it, until you know what you want to spend it on, until you know what you want to invest in, until you know um, you know where you want to go, I think that the money should sit there. Now, I'll give you some some practical suggestions of what I would do with it. The first thing is, if you are working... And generating active income, act, you know, earned income, which you should be. You should be. Your goal should be to get this fifty-six thousand to a hundred thousand. Uh, and I would tell you, if someone's paying for your school, or you're going to school, live at home with your parents, uh, stay with your grandparents, live with a buddy, do whatever you can to live super cheap, work as much as you can while you're going to school, get your degree, but work full time and set a goal of, of graduating from school with hundred and fifty-six thousand dollars in your in your bank account instead of fifty-six thousand or whatever the number is for you. But if you're earning active income, I would go ahead and I would make Roth IRA contributions every year. You could put 6000 bucks into a Roth IRA contribution. You don't have to invest the money. So if you just want to keep it in a cash account, you can keep it in a cash account. If you want to buy stocks, you can buy stocks. That'll come down to what do you want to invest the money in. Um, but uh, I, I would mo- I would start moving at least 6000 bucks a year into a Roth IRA. The reason I, I like that is at any point in time, you can take the money out of the Roth IRA if you want to. You can take the contributions out of the Roth IRA and spend the money on anything you want. But every year that goes by, if you don't make a Roth IRA contribution, you lose the ability to make that Roth IRA contribution because that calendar year is gone. It's gone forever. So let's say you you, you are earning at least $5,000 a year. Go ahead and make a $5,000 a year Roth IRA contribution every year for the next five years. Then if on the backside, you graduate from college, you decide I'm going to buy that sailboat and uh, go spend a few You're sailing around the world, get yourself, you know, make a $25,000 distribution from the um, Roth IRA. If that's just a return of contribution, there's no tax event, and you can just simply use the money somewhere else. But if every year that you don't make that contribution, you lose the calendar year and you won't be able to ever get it back. So that's what something I would do with it uh, very intentionally. The other thing that I would focus on is I would think about what you want your life to look like in the coming years. If you're pretty established in the college space, uh, you, you you feel like, and you don't know this yet, but, but if you're pretty established, you've chosen a college, you think it's a good fit for you, um, I would look around and I would think about buying a house to live in uh, over the next few years if that's relevant to you. I think that in the next six months, there, there may start to be some pretty good deals available on real estate. And if you can use some of this money as a down payment for a house, and if you're earning enough income uh, with your with your job or jobs or businesses or whatever you're doing that you can qualify for a mortgage, I wouldn't mind owning a house. Uh, while you're in college, it's nice if you can buy a three or four bedroom house and then rent out three or four of the bedrooms to roommates, uh, well, to help you uh, do, who will pay you an income. I think that's that's a really nice and reasonable thing to do, and then. The key thing is just to sit on it and start to look for opportunities and start to train yourself to say, how could I invest this money effectively? What kinds of businesses would I like to be involved in? Um, you've got private businesses that you can get involved in. That's generally going to be your most profitable thing to do with money. You could invest in in tangible assets. Uh, it could be real estate. could be um, you know maybe you can maybe you want to flip um, classic cars or buy used cars, right? One of the there are all kinds of businesses that work really well when you're in college um, because they they could be easily fit around um, around your classes. So for example, maybe you start a business. Flipping cars. Uh, you may or may not need to get a dealer license, but maybe you get a dealer license. You go to the auctions. You buy cars um, cheap, and then you flip them uh, somewhere. You find some market. Maybe it's a college market. Maybe you you set up out of a little uh, self-storage warehouse somewhere, uh, and you flip cars. Maybe you flip RVs. You flip boats. You flip um, uh I don't know, hair cutting clippers, whatever you find that that people will will sell stuff to you for, then you start to invest your money into that inventory and you start to to manage those flips. That would be a really good business to be involved in uh, in college. Um, there could be things that you could do, which would take advantage of the resources that you have around you. So, as a college student, one of the resources you have is is ready part time labor. So, I don't know if there's still a business for it, but in the past, there's been a business a business available for you know hauling junk, cleaning out junk. I know people who do that. There's the course of course the big franchises, Hunk's Hauling Junk or One Eight Hundred Got Junk, but uh, but there, you can do the same thing informally as well. I've known people who have made their their business. Just simply based on on you know offering to clean stuff up, and then they flip uh, all the stuff that they that they that they find. Uh, they flip it all online, flip it on Facebook, uh, uh, on Craigslist. Uh, sometimes they open up a, a thrift store, but those kinds of businesses can work really well around a college schedule because you set up the marketing arm to uh, to bring. Somebody in you set up the marketing arm to bring in the customers, but then you have a a, a labor base that if on any Thursday or any Saturday that you got a, that you got jobs, you just offer some guys cash to come and work for you uh, for a day, and you manage all the details of it. But that that would be the kind of business doesn't need you don't need much money in it to run a business like that. But maybe you need to buy a truck or a trailer or something like that so you can run the business. Um, look around and see what opportunities you see around you for running a business. The classic college uh, job of painting houses still works. Um, you know, the classics of, of pressure cleaning businesses or detailing businesses. People can make, you can make a lot of money with that. And so the fact that you have money gives you the ability, if you're interested in those kinds of businesses or you see the opportunity around you, it gives you the, op- the ability to, to, to buy the equipment that you need. Let's say you start a pressure cleaning business and you keep it really... Really lean and mean, uh, you know, some simple machines, just a, a cheap trailer, buy some used one from some guy that's going out of business with a tank on it, um, and your your job is to become, because you're studying business, your job is to become excellent at the marketing of it, figuring out how to get the clients, figuring out how to get the customers, and then you've got a, a ready pool of guys that you can hire just for an hourly wage ad hoc to come and run the, run the pressure cleaner for you. So I'm not steering you exclusively in the direction of these kind of manual labor jobs Jobs, um, but they are huge opportunities for a guy who actually understands how business works. The majority of people who go into industries like that, they don't have any creative imagination. They don't understand marketing. They don't set up funnels. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't, they don't think about it. They just want to go and, and run a pressure cleaner. And so, if you're thinking from a business perspective, you can go into almost any of those businesses and um, do really well. Uh, another one to think about would be things like bounce house rentals. Uh, why? What do you have available to you? Well, you have money. And so you could buy bounce houses and you have access to 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 labor, to, to guys who will work for you. And if you can get them out of bed early early on Saturday morning and, and uh, early on Sunday morning, and you give them a truck and a trailer and say, go deliver these bounce houses, then you can coordinate a pretty decent business. And so people who get into bounce house businesses often don't have money to start it, but you have capital. And so um, you go and, and and test it out. Buy a used water slide. Buy a used uh, bounce house. Um, get yourself a little trailer or whatever vehicle you have. Maybe if you need a little truck to drive them around, um, you know, figure those things out. But use the money. And so, what I would do if I had fifty six thousand dollars is I'd say, what can I? How can I invest five grand? I want to keep forty five grand in the bank. Uh, sorry, I want to keep. Um fifty grand in the bank, but how can I invest five grand and turn that five into thirty in the next few months? What kind of business would allow me to do that? And I think that you've got really good opportunities um, with uh, with those kinds of businesses because of the labor market that's available to you. So those are just some ideas off the top of my head. If I woke up in your shoes at 18 with 56,000 bucks in the bank, um, I would probably do all of those things and see what works and then do more of what works uh, because that's a good way of leveraging your money. And that's a far more profitable way way for you to, um, invest your time than doing some silly hourly job. Um, I, but what, what you have is capital and that's the, one of the most valuable things you have and you don't want to waste it. Um, because most people in your situation don't have capital, but you do. And so use that capital very judiciously and use it so that you can, you can always keep yourself where you're not working. You're not, you're not profiting from your labor. You're profiting from your capital. And, um, some variation of those ideas is readily available around you. So that's what I got for you.
3: That's great. Thank you so much. Cool. My pleasure.
0: Keep in touch. I thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting the show so that you're on the call today. And uh, keep in touch because I, I, I love uh, – I'd be happy to talk with you every week um, about some of this stuff. All right, Josh in California. Welcome, Josh. How can I serve you today, sir?
4: Hi. Um,
5: my question is more of a philosophical one uh, based on golden handcuffs. Okay. Um, I live in Southern California. My wife works full time as an RN, and we make really good money. Um, she's bringing in six figures. I work from home, bringing in twenty to fifty, depending on side work. Um, but I'm home full time with the kids. Okay.
0: Twenty to 50, issue, hold on, hold on. My issue is twenty to fifty thousand dollars a year, yeah. or twenty to fifty thousand dollars a month. Yes, sir. Okay. Got it. Go ahead.
5: Uh, a year. Um, so I'm home full time with the kids. We kind of did a role swap um, after a back injury. Cool. Um, but My issue is Southern California, especially in this pandemic-esque environment, isn't really conducive for any um, substantial uh, self-care or any potential growth of uh, crops or anything like that in the backyard. Sure. The issue I run into more philosophically is my wife is in a very specialized niche of cardiac pediatric pediatric cardiac nursing, and um, any place that we go that would have that specialty does not have good lifestyle options. It'd be major cities, major metropolitan areas where you can't really get acreage and a hobby farm. Um, so I'm trying to decide we have two young kids. Do you think grand scheme would be better to move now, walk away from a specialty into just general nursing and focus more on staying home with the kids and doing a little hobby farm,
0: or I lost you right at, there. We go. There we go. Sorry, different. I got you're back now. Yeah, I was losing you right at. Or keep going.
5: Oh, uh, so or we could um, move. Uh, so move to the or stay in the suburbs. Stack up cash now, and then move once the kids are a little bit older. Right now, the kids are two and five.
0: And so, your long term ambition would be to move to a hobby farm somewhere or a specific geographic location?
5: Um, Pretty much anywhere, any place that's taxable, uh, has good tax benefits, good Second Amendment benefits, and isn't Southern California.
0: Got it. Is there another large market? outside of Southern California, for example, Dallas, Texas, Miami, Florida, um, uh, Chicago, is there another market outside of Southern California where she could uh, practice this pediatric cardiology nursing specialty?
5: Um, One of the places was in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, There's the Mayo Clinic, and then Houston uh, also has a pretty good setup. Um, But to be practically close enough because she's on 12-hour shifts, Um, the hour or so commute um, really starts to add up quickly to a 14-hour day.
1: So being able
5: to manage that, um, it's kind of hard to find any decent-sized land that's close enough to the hospitals what we're running into right
4: now.
0: And why do you think you need decent-sized land and what is decent-sized land for you?
4: Right now we're looking at somewhere around 20
5: ish acres. Um, something that we can have small ish livestock, goats, chickens, things of that nature, um, small shooting range in the backyard, that type of a thing we can go back to kind of like the old country living, um, more so than the hustle and bustle. Um, it's become more self-evident these last couple of weeks as we haven't left the house Right. that the, the half or quarter of an acre that we're on here in Southern California is just not quite big enough for uh, people to live in.
0: Understood. Well, it's a fair question. And for me, I would begin with how bad do I want it, right? There are some people who just desperately want to move to the country. That's, they're clear. They know this is our thing. We want to move to the country. And because they want to move to the country and that's, that's very clearly what they want to do, then, um, know I say go for it you don't have to sit around and wait for more money if you're sure that this is what you want to do and the great thing about nursing is that it is such a you know common uh, thing that can go and to you know basically everywhere it can go all around the world and be extremely valuable Uh, if you're going to start with that kind of big picture mentality I would say think carefully about where you want to be Um, so Let's say, for example, let's say you wanted to have twenty acres. Well, I would look at it, you know, maybe somewhere like uh, from California. I don't know if you have family in Southern California, but Californians. Uh, lo- there's places in New Mexico, kind of arid, of course. That maybe you want more. Go to go to a place, you know, to to Idaho. Um, and there's, there are plenty of hospitals in Idaho. Your big two areas would, of course, well, you could do Idaho Falls if you want a smaller place, uh, Boise, uh, you know, Coeur d'Alene, but if you wanted 20 acres in the woods and, and your wife wanted to work in, in uh, Coeur d'Alene, there's a hospital right in downtown Coeur d'Alene, and they hire nurses, and so you can you can find a hospital that's gonna do it, and an hour's commute uh, from Coeur d'Alene to um, I don't know, up north, <laughs> you know, living in Bonners Ferry and, and commuting down to Coeur d'Alene, um, eh, a little tough during the winter, but an hour's commute there is very different than an hour's commute in California. And there's tons and tons and tons of acreage around a city like that. I would look really hard at keeping the specialty. I think that if you, there's there's got to be a significant jump in pay for having that specialty. And I think it also... leads to more job security by having such a specialty. And so I would look hard at the um, Jacksonville area. Jacksonville is a great city. Um, You get tons of benefits of going to Florida. Uh, You'd have a major reduction in state taxes by going to Florida. Major increases in freedom, you know, with some of the things that you're talking about. Florida has has very good, very decent gun laws. Florida's got great homeschooling laws. Florida's pretty good across the board. Um, In most laws, there's not a a lot to complain about in Florida. If, uh, with regard to laws. Most of the complaints are going to be um, kind of functional complaints of the city. You know, if you're in South Florida and in Broward or Miami, um, you're, it's just it's just a very dense place, uh, not nearly as dense as Southern California, but still very dense. And so uh, Jacksonville, however, is, is very different. South of Jacksonville, w- uh, west of Jacksonville, north of Jacksonville, there's plenty of places where you could do that, uh, especially if you're willing to do a little bit of a commute. Uh, but Jacksonville would be a much more livable place than 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 Southern California. So if you are convinced that that's what I want to do, then I say go for it and make a plan to to make it happen as quickly as possible. If you're kind of on the fence about it, I would say earn the money and stack up up as much money as possible and then look for ways to do the farming thing or the hobby farming thing in in other directions. With a two-year-old and a five-year-old, it is in some ways an ideal time to go, but it's still to the point where your children are basically functionally useless to you. So if you go to 20 acres, um, you're going to be doing all the work while your five-year-old helps for five minutes and your two-year-old is functionally worthless. Um, and so, another few years of strong earnings—you um, know, letting some land prices maybe come down—if uh, your wife can stay employed right now, I would not jump. I would be shopping the market hard, but I wouldn't jump because I think you'd have a very different experience going with an eight-year-old and a f- eight-year-old and a five-year-old in terms of how useful they can be. Uh, there's danger in that, right? If your kids are are addicted to you know, couch potato lifestyle right now, and then you try to put them on a farm, maybe it is better to go with a five-year-old and a two-year-old just to avoid that danger. Um, <clears throat> but I wouldn't jump. Um, I would say it all comes down to how clear you are. If, if you're clear, this is what you want. Whenever I Whenever I'm clear on a goal, I calculate the cost of the goal. So if you say my wife's going to go from $130,000 to $90,000, I calculate the cost. I say how much of that is lost in tax? Um, how much of that is lost in high cost, high insurance cost, high housing cost, et cetera? And if I can go to... A little cabin, um, you know, in, in an hour, you know, thirty minutes outside of Cordellane, uh, for a much lower cost versus the cost of living in uh, in in California. And I can get closer to my, to our ideal lifestyle, closer to a place that respects freedom, closer to neighbors that I'm more likely to to see eye to eye with, closer to this twenty acres in a dream kind of scenario. Then I say, do it quickly. I, I, I'm never going to let golden handcuffs keep me if I know I want to change. Uh, just simply because I can't get time back. I can always get money back. I can always get jobs back. I can always pivot. But I'm never going to get. I'm never going to let um, golden handcuffs keep me. Uh, I, I, th- I feel like I kind of gave you two answers, but uh, was that useful? You want to ask
5: any follow up? Yeah. No. That, that definitely is helpful. Um, and again, it's just nice to talk through it with somebody. Um, my question then on that is we do own our house in Southern California. We still owe a little bit on it, um, but I'm hesitant to rent it out in our current environment where if somebody decides to move in and then not, of
0: course. Right. Mm-hmm. I think you dropped out, you muted yourself and dropped out, but I got I the question about oh. what to do with the house. So I would say that yeah. certainly I would be nervous and Um, I don't know the right answer there because the real estate market is in total flux. I guess the first thing I would do is I'd put the house on the market and see there's never, there's no downside to putting your house on the market. And I would get busy doing whatever needs to be done to fix it up, doing whatever needs to be done to see if I can get this thing to sell quickly. Um, uh, There's some good resources out there. I like, um, I read uh, uh, Jack Spirico, um, uh, published a, co-published a little book that I thought was good. I don't think I've ever mentioned on the show, but he co-published a little book on you know how to get a house to sell quickly. Uh, he's not He did it with a real estate agent, I think, but he's not a real estate agent, but I've always thought his strategies were pretty good. Go find that book online uh, and grab it, cheap little Kindle book, uh, and basically start shining up your house and do whatever needs to be done to put it on the market so it'll sell quickly when the market goes. If you got an offer on your house, let me ask you a question. How much equity under normal times, kind of pre-coronavirus, how much equity do you have in your house
6: uh
5: about 100 it's worth 350 or before all the nonsense worth 350 we have a 230 or 240 on it okay so about 100
0: all right and do you have other money um other savings that you could use to facilitate a move if you needed to
5: uh le- right now liquid cash uh 30 ish okay so you, got,
0: so you got plenty of move money if you could if you could get a job and if you could sell the house you could be free of southern california is that correct that's correct. Okay. And do, are you and your wife convinced that in the coming years you want to get out of Southern California?
5: We are. My, my big concern is that with her specialty, she is essentially unfireable right now um, because she has enough of the cute little letters after her name that uh, there's nobody to replace her right. in her yeah. current role.
0: Okay. Okay. So what I would do is I would recognize I'm determined to get out of here. And for me, that would be, I would not live in Southern California um, ever. The only way I would ever live in Southern California is if God spoke from heaven with a blinding flash of lightning and said, Joshua, thou shalt move to California. I'd say, yes, sir, boss, and go. But, but you know, gr- short of that, I'm not living in Southern California. Um, so for you, uh, then I would, I, would, I would do two things. I would start looking for jobs. And I'd put my house on the market, and the fastest you could possibly imagine that happening would be, you know, all those things happening, uh, you know, being able to sell the house and find another job. The fastest would be uh, a few months, right? A couple, three months. Yeah. Okay. That's so. The best. Okay, so a couple of 3 months will give plenty of time to figure out what's happening with coronavirus, what's happening with eco- the economy, etc. I'm not going to leave a place where she's unfirable if I can't get another great job offer and if I can't get an offer on the house. But if she got a great job offer that was a 20% decrease in pay because somebody wants her as a specialist because they're expanding in there in there, maybe at, you know, children's hospital and in again, a place that's, that you like more, anywhere in the country, you you pick. But if I get a great, great job offer and I'm getting good offers on the house, then you don't need that security. But if you do find that the housing market is dead, the house was worth 350 but now it, you know you can't give it away for 250 and she's not getting any job offers that are anywhere near what she's making now, then the, the answer is obvious that you stay put and you keep earning and saving until you can navigate those two things. But if you're clear you want to go, there's no reason to wait on working on the logistics of starting the move.
5: I like it. That definitely is clear. I just think um, – yeah, go yeah. ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, uh, oh, no worries. I, I definitely think that will help to kind of guide conversations um, and kind of give us a better outlook of what to focus on and what to prioritize. Yeah. To me – Kind of a zero to 60 kind of a thing.
0: Absolutely. To me, I, I just go back to this very simple scenario. If you know what you want, go after it. Right, you're None of us are promised tomorrow. If you know what you want and it's something different than you're doing today, go after it. Go after it with enthusiasm. Go after it with gusto. Go after it with vigor. Don't wait around. Why sit around and make more money unless you need that money to do something that you want? And from what you described, you don't need that money to move. You want to move. You don't want to raise your children in Southern California. So make a plan and move. Now, along the way, don't be stupid. Um, make a strategic plan. So you need to sell the house. There's no reason for you to pay two mortgages um, You know, if you don't have to. If you get a great offer on the house, sell the house. And you need a job. She needs to get another nursing job so that so that she can earn the income that the family needs so that you can get the farm going and, and work with the boys. So um, you need those two things in hand. But I'm not going to sit around and make more money if I've already decided that something that I want um, is a ahead of me and if i just pursue that something that i want um you know i think i think the money solves itself in the long run it just doesn't make any sense to to sit around and make more money if you don't need the money uh, to make the change all right timothy welcome to the show how can i serve you today sir timothy in the usa you are up you. Yes, sir. go ahead Hang on just a moment, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, 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 on. Sounds to me like your Bluetooth has disconnected and I cannot hear you. So pick up your phone uh, or do something so I can hear your audio because I want to hear the question.
4: I can hear me now.
0: Now I can hear you. Go ahead with your question, sir.
4: All right, thank you much. I'll I'll start back at the beginning here. Um, I was, uh, just a little background, I was raised, uh, taught essentially to pin my money into three categories uh, spend it, save it, or give it. Uh, so, uh, even now today, I kind of budget, uh, with those three categories in mind, you know, I've been it into, uh, spend it, save it, or give it. Um, in the personal finance world, I see a lot of advice out there for how to save it smartly and invest it or, and also how to spend it smartly, but I, I haven't come across a whole lot for how to give it smartly. Um, so I would say, you know, in my, in my personal uh, finances, that's the where I have the least amount of confidence. So I was just curious if you have any nuggets of advice on how to make sure that I'm, I'm giving smartly or uh, opportunities to, to give smartly.
7: Thanks.
0: Yeah. It's a subject I think about a lot. And it the, the the scale of your giving matters intensely. If you've got $100 to give away, it's pretty easy to give away $100 effectively. Uh, if you've got a million dollars to give away, it's a lot harder. And so I'd like to uh, think more about these topics in the future, and I'd like to uh, teach more about these topics and facilitate experts on these topics more in the future, uh, because uh, it's, it's very important to me, and I agree with you that it's an underrepresented um, area of the market, um, how to give money away uh, effectively so that it does good and not harm. Um, on an annual basis, how much money do you want to give away right now?
4: I'm I'm shooting for um, forty to fifty probably in the in the next uh, next two years here. Forty
0: to fifty thousand dollars per year. Correct. Okay, so that's where it becomes difficult because um, when you're moving into the range of forty to fifty thousand dollars per year, it's hard to give that much money to individuals just one on one. You can give away several thousands of dollars per year individually, one on one. But with forty to fifty thousand dollars per year, that's tough. Uh, It's tough to give that much away one on one, just with you. You know, one you versus two, five other people. The numbers start to get too big, and you start to have a want to have a. uh, you You have to you have to upgrade your infrastructure. What kinds of of things do you want to give the money to? Do you have some ideas?
4: I do, but uh, but again, that's kind of where I'm looking for advice as well. Um, you know, I want to give towards the areas that yeah, I feel like I can get uh, most bang for my buck. Um, so I look at uh, child sponsorship, for example. You know, those uh, programs are run fairly cheaply, and uh, you're changing lives for forty dollars a month. Um, uh, so re- really, a lot of my giving tends to go uh, internationally towards uh, under underdeveloped uh, areas um, to to meet basic needs.
0: Are you also going to those areas and, and doing things personally? Or are you just giving to organizations that are working there?
4: Uh, I've not been there uh, personally. Um, just life has gotten in the way um, of, uh, you know, just, just haven't had the time. But um, in the next few years, I'm, I'm thinking about a transition where I would have more time uh, to, to go and, and travel more to these areas. Okay.
0: What about nearby you? Um, what problems do you see near you, uh, physically, geographically near you in your life, in your daily life? What kinds of problems do you see things that you wish were different?
4: Oh, it's, it's tough to say. I I live here in Washington, D.C. and, you know, one of the most uh, affluent, uh, countries in the nation, you know, so, um, uh,
1: I, you know,
4: I, I give to my local church, uh, here in Washington, D.C. and, um, I've uh, I've helped a couple uh friends in need uh during the current crisis but uh that's about it. That that's kind of why a lot of my uh my giving is focused uh, externally. Although uh you know I'd certainly welcome the opportunity to uh to give more to my local community as well.
0: Have you prayed about where to give your money?
4: Not as much as I should have.
0: Yeah. So I'm not not trying to make you feel bad about it, but I would say genuinely like start, start there. <laughs> Um, start by just simply praying and say, Lord, show me where I can give this money and ask God to open your eyes to specific needs and to specific people, to specific places, to specific organizations, to specific causes, to specific things, and ask him to open your eyes to that. Um, to me, that's where I always start. I always start with where's the need and trust that God will show it to me. Um, What I do is I set money aside into a giving account, and I just have a separate account that this is the money that I'm gonna give away. And you can choose it. I recommend you choose it based upon a percentage. is a is a good way to do it. And a percentage that's a minimum level that you're going to give away, and then you add to it when you want to. Right? You can always go above that percentage, but you just set it aside as an as a percentage, just like you do, you know, pay yourself first uh, in your personal finances, or just like you do profits first with your business finances, or just like you do. Um, you do the same thing with giving, that you give first. And so uh, if you are tithing to a local church, then that would of course be your start. And you know, okay, 10%, I'm tithing 10% into my local church if that's something that you're engaged in. And then you choose how much additional or if you've chosen something else. And by just simply having the money staring you in the face that I got to get rid of this, you start to look for opportunities. I think that opens up a lot of people's eyes that many people have never you know, gone around looking for uh, ways to give money. Just like many people earlier, I was talking with the caller, about having money for investing. Many people have never gone around with money burning a hole in their investing pocket. We're like, I got to invest this money. I don't know what to invest it in. Well, if you've got money, then you start to see more investment opportunities when you go looking for them. Now, you're, being a a Christian, you are responsible to God. All people, of course, are responsible to God, but I'm just speaking using Christianese language. You are responsible to God um, for where you give the money to. And so if you're going to be responsible, if you're a steward of God's money, then it's fair for you to expect that your master would tell you where to invest the money. And so you should start by praying about it and saying, Lord, show me where do you want me to invest the money? And then believe God to open up opportunities for you, to believe God for him to show you specific scenarios specific people specific places where you can invest the money that will do good. And I want to be very cautious not to tell you what to invest your money into. I believe that it's every bit as important for you to, you know, give money. There's a, a you know, a guy in in your church is is uh, you know he's starting a business or he's you know he's trying to finish his house and he ran out of money I believe it's every bit as important for you to to get twenty thousand dollars to that guy as it is for you to get twenty thousand dollars to a, a charity organization overseas and in fact a lot of times I think it's better for you to give the money to that guy who's local than the money overseas. I'm very skeptical about a lot of overseas money giving. I don't want to go too detailed into it right now, but I'm extremely skeptical about a huge amount of it. And I'm skeptical of the vast majority of organizations. If I'm going to give money overseas, I want to make sure that I know the people involved and that I know that they're faithful men who are going to handle it wisely. Who are going to to, to move with wisdom. Because international charity distorts so many things and messes up so many local markets and i'm convinced in a lot of situations it does more bad than it does good now I'm, i don't have a list of organizations i'm not out you know trying to say that samaritan ministries is wrong because they give away christmas boxes right you know i think that 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 all of us can, can choose and we should we can pick the things that are valuable. But the most important thing I think is to is to develop personal exposure to the marketplace and personal exposure to the needs. And so I recommend that you start nearby and ask yourself, what are the needs in our local church? So um, step one, I would say pray. Um, Step two is I would start talking with the men in your local church, visit with the pastoral staff, talk to the deacons, talk to other people and say, you know, I've been thinking about what I could do. I'd like to invest some more money in our local community here. What are some things that we could do? Uh, And so you'll have your own unique scenarios. But for, for example, for me, Um, things that I would want to do. If I were living in Washington, D.C., and I were part of a local church community, I would say, what is our local church doing to support the people within the church? As a local church, you have a mandate, a divine mandate to support those who are in need among your community, to support the widows, the orphans. Are you doing that? And I'm not saying, is the church doing it? Are you doing it? Are you involved in that? How much of the church budget is going to a building and to you know salaries and whatnot versus how much is going to support widows and orphans? Um, how much is going to um, support people who are poor? How much is being given away? What, what are the needs in your local area? One of the things that I would love to see is I would love to see all government uh, welfare programs disbanded entirely. The problem is… If that were to happen, that would create total chaos because there are so many millions and tens of millions of people who depend upon those those government welfare programs in order for their own livelihood and for everything that they have. And the problem is that most of us and most of our churches are so uninvolved in our local community. You know, we make some efforts and some do more than others and make a token effort, but there are people that are hurting, that are in need. And if we all of a sudden said, oh, let's rely on our local churches— Um, people would be left starving. I think that's a a reality, an honest reality that we should acknowledge. And so I think you pick one, you pick something. Um, I would look at at how you can... you can benefit things that are important to you. So I'd be happy to. Maybe there's a, a family in your congregation that they would love to homeschool if they could just figure out a way to make the money work, but they can't homeschool because of that. Well, man, I'd be writing them a, a check uh, and, and and trying to help them to homeschool because it's one thing to support a missionary overseas, great, but what about the missionaries in your own church? Um, you know, the mom with three children who's stuck working a job and thus she's got to send her children off and let the government raise her children and all of. Of a sudden, the children come back. They 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 have no interest in Christianity. They've adopted all of the 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 philosophy and the culture of the culture around, and now it's doomed. And so, is there a way that you can start, um, you know, a homeschooling cooperative in your local church, or is there a way that you can say, um, how can we establish um, a ministry, uh, an outreach to help? Um, you know, parents have activities for their children or can we, you know, I, I don't know. There's the, 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 the world is open. But I think that the most important place to start is in your backyard and to say, what are some problems that I see? And then brainstorm together with other people to say, what are some things that we could do to meet some of these problems? If people are hungry in your community, feed them. Um, if people are, are, are thirsty, you know, provide for them. Um, and then if you have opportunities in other places, then go and build personal networks. Um, so I, I, I think it's fine to support big organizations. I do. Obviously, if that's what you feel, um, accountable for, go for it. Um, but I think that's not ideal, um. I think that if if I would, what would be better is for you to be involved in the local needs and start in your local church, start with those needs, start in your local community, start on your own neighborhood, start on your block. Um, and before you go and, and, and go to something exotic overseas, start with the problems in your own backyard. Um, is there somebody who really feels uh, a burden to to ministry, but if they had some financial support, they would be able to do that. Is there a young man who would love to go out and and preach on the streets? Is there somebody who is doing incredible work um, online? Is there somebody who is is um, adopting orphans? Right? Or what's how many orphans have go through and ask yourself how many orphans have we adopted um, in this church uh, over the past couple of years, uh, and then start. Putting your money into whatever it is that that comes out to you, and then if you run out of uh, if you still have money left uh, when you run out of ideas, then ask God for more ideas. Ask Him to bring you more people who uh, who are in needs. And if uh, if you run out of money, then, then then you know when you still have ideas, then then figure it out. So. That's a lot of generalizations. I, I don't. I try to be very private with some of the stuff that I've done and, and that I'm doing. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think that those are things that I should talk about publicly. But, but I do believe that God will answer that prayer. He has answered it for me. He does answer it. He will answer it for you. And I believe that it's just important to to if you're looking for the answers in your local community, you'll find it. And then it, coming, you know, in the for, in the future, I'll try to to talk about. Uh, you know broader areas, but I think forty to fifty thousand dollars a year is that's that's an amount of money you can give away without an organization. You don't need any you know some stupid tax deductible organization. You don't need to get involved in that stuff. Just you could there you can give that away in your local community to people who are in need. <clears throat> um, if you're looking to the Lord to open up those opportunities for you, so that's what I got.
4: Yeah, all that's uh, all that's much appreciated. I think you already answered my uh, second question. My second question was going to be about a charitable giving account, but um, that you know, in light of what you just said, uh, that wouldn't make any make any sense at all. I was already thinking that it wouldn't make a ton of sense. So, um, appreciate it. Here, let
0: me let me expand on that for just a moment because it is important. My opinion is, if you can get a tax deduction for giving that you believe is right, take the tax deduction. That's fine. I'm not opposed to taking tax deductions. I'm not opposed to taking tax deductions for for charitable giving. What I'm opposed to personally, and I think conceptually, I'm opposed to building everything around tax deductions. And I think that it's crazy to get in bed with the government when you don't have to. Because when you get in bed with the government, they're going to give you all kinds of onerous regulations and restrictions that have to be followed. And there's no reason to subject yourself to that. Now. The, the biggest people with, where we failed the most in the United States is by establishing um, tax-exempt organizations with churches. I, I'm a, i I'm a weirdo. I'm a, no one was surprised by that, but I don't think I think any church should be registered with the government in any capacity. They do that largely because of, of making it possible to hold large amounts of property, and I don't see why a church organization should hold large amounts of property. Now, that puts me far out of the mainstream, but I see no reason why you need an organization to... Business organization related to a church. Um, I just assume that my vision of the church is as a a nimble, flexible organization of of individuals. And those individuals, if those individuals just simply handle most of the detail of their uh, of their lives and and the needs of the church, you can dramatically reduce most of the uh, you you can dramatically reduce and, and and I'll expand on this for a moment because it's it's something that's important to me, and especially right now, it's probably an interesting time to do it. Um, I'm a part of a church, um, as right all all believers anywhere are going to be a part of a church. But when I look around, one of the things that I see ra- happening right now in much of the world is there are a lot of churches uh, who who are organ- and here I'm talking about the organization, the church organizations. Who are really suffering right now financially because their entire model is built upon basically a big business model. Their entire model is built upon this idea that there's a large centralized location, a large centralized community. Everybody goes to a big church building. Everybody uh, meets there, and one pandemic comes along, and all of a sudden things start falling falling apart. Now, many church organizations are very careful with their money. They issue debt. they're, they save etc many people are continuing to support their churches um, giving online sending checks in the mail even if they can't gather together in person but what I see is I think on the uh, this continues you're going to see a lot of those big church organizations collapse um, and a lot of times because there's so much overhead there's so much of this like massive centralized um, business big building etc that, that the organization itself is not flexible it's not able to to adjust and to um, to move Around, whereas um, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, it can be another way. It can be much more nimble. So what we did when the when the church um, when we stopped meeting as a large church, uh, I did what I've been accustomed to my whole life, which was just simply invite a couple of neighbors over for fellowship and meet in my. Out in my carport, and so we we had just a handful of people, and we got together and out in my carport and moved out, and, and we t- sat in a far direction and we gathered together as a church, and I see that as an opportunity that every church has, and, and as we were sharing with that one of the um, church staff is actually one of my neighbors, and as I' we were talking about it, I was comparing, I said, compare this to a food supply. OK, if you think about a food supply uh, like in the United States uh, and in many places, the food supply is very, very centralized. You got a big mega farm that provides huge amounts of food. The problem is that that big and that big mega farm when everything is going great, it is really productive. The problem is if something comes along that causes a problem with that um, with that that big mega farm, you wind up the whole everyone starves. And that's what's happening right now. When people are building everything, as far as their function of the church is built, is built upon um, a low, a big congregation. If if a problem comes through and you can't gather as this giant congregation, then everyone starves. Now I appreciate and understand that everyone's trying to do stuff virtually. Um, I want to. I believe that every everyone who we're all doing the best that we know of, right? We're all doing what we see. Just what I see is I don't have any reason. Why do I need a virtual sermon, like some kind of of sermon being sent online? Why not just gather with fellowship with two neighbors or three neighbors? That's going to be much more effective. And you know, we'll all sit ten feet apart if necessary to to comply. But but. I compare that the agricultural model to small local farms. So let's say that on your property, you grew all kinds of stuff. Everybody has a garden. Everybody has some vegetables. Everybody has some chickens. Well, now the food supply is distributed and it's much more resilient when the food supply is, is distributed. And so um, uh, in that context, if there's a problem with one food, you know, one farm on one side of town, everyone else has something to supply. Now, pure self-sufficiency is, is basically starvation. So I don't think that everybody should try to run their own, uh, build their own farm on their property and produce everything for themselves. That's starvation. There's tremendous economies of scale that come from having an organization outside of town, a farm outside of town and having factories, et cetera. And so the ideal solution is to have both of these things interacting. I think there's a place for big congregations of people to come together, but that should not be the primary function of the church, nor should me just in my family with my little... uh, you know, my little fellowship and my little family, that's not the primary function. But when we can expand and contract at different levels, then it it opens up a tremendous amount of resiliency. You create, um, to use the term, an anti-fragile organization. You create an organization that has infinite levels of expansion and contraction. And that's the design of the Christian church. It should be an organization that's eminently flexible because it's not dependent on big infrastructure, big buildings, et cetera. It can adjust, it can adapt. It can be a group of three people or it can be a group of 3,000 people in different contexts. So now when you come back to meeting the needs of that organization, one of the most powerful and important things is that as an as a local body of believers, you're looking to say, what are the needs that are here right here right now? Not you're just stroking a check and the finance committee is going to say, well these are the organi- these are the ministries that our church organization is supporting, but no. You in fellowship with three people or 30 people or 300 whatever it is, what are the needs that we see right now here in our neighborhood? And how can we meet those needs? Not how can we give to a big organization that's going to funnel the money through, but how can we meet those needs? So back now to the registration and, you know, with with the with the government, when you register a taxable tax free charity or you register a church organization with the government, you impose on yourself such massive levels of restriction. You have to do accounting. You have to do this, that it basically only works at the big level. It basically only works when you have that mega farm. And now you've gotta have all this structure. If you go and and, and build up for yourself uh, attack, you know, a charity. You start your own charitable organization. Now you have to have a board. Now you have to file uh, papers with the IRS. And it stifles you and it stymies your growth. One of the reasons why many churches cannot grow and one of the reasons why many churches do not engage in evangelism is simply they don't have the ability to, to they don't have the capacity to handle it. Uh, when I talk to I, I have a lot of friends of mine who are pastors and I always ask the question, what would, you, what would happen if every single one of your um your congregants this weekend invited one family to come to church, right? Let's say you have a hundred congregants um, who invite one family to to come to church. Well, let's say that, you know, 20% of them, um, 20% of them accept. Well, now you'd have 120. And then the next week, let's say that uh, some of them come back. And what if you did that every single week, just one family, right? What happens is the entire thing collapses within a couple of months because the organization is so calcified it can't handle the growth. You'd have to build a bigger building and you got to start a building fund and you got to go and do, you know, get a parking lot thing, you know, have somebody, got to expand the parking lot. There's just simply not parking for people. And so you create this calcified organization that's a nightmare because it can't grow. It just simply is too structured to grow. Whereas if you have as a primary function, you have people meeting in their houses or you have, um, you know, Timothy has a larger facility where he's got the ability to, to have 30 people meet in his barn or 50 people or 100 people. What you have there is you have an anti-fragile organization that can expand and contract uh, without problems. And so financially, the same thing happens when it comes to giving money. If you have the ability and you're structured into a an organization that has to give and you've got all these reports of how are we handling the money, Everything has to go through a process, and you have to create a a requisition process and a request for grant, and we have to document everything so that we can assure the IRS that we've given the money away properly. And it calcifies you, and that may be necessary because that structure is necessary at the very high end, but that calcification leads to lack of flexibility to give. Whereas if you just go and say, and you give to an individual, and you give this person $100, and you give that person $1,000, and you do that with personal relationships, you're not getting a tax deduction, but what you are getting is flexibility. And it allows you to be discriminating with your giving. You can make sure that you're only giving to organizations or to people that you think are going to be helpful for it. And it allows you to actually do much more good. Um, Some of the work that we've done here at Radical Personal Finance in Venezuela, um, if I were giving most, the vast Majority of the money that came to me did not flow through the organization and one of the, the the tax exempt or the tax deductible organizations that I could have flown it through just came to me and so people didn't get a tax deduction for that but what I did was I got the money directly into the hands of the people that needed it and I did it in a situation without having to deal with the reports and everything and now that the, the work is bigger most of it's having to go through a large tax deductible you know international charity the problem is that it's almost impossible for them to comply with all the reporting requirements and so this audience got the got the project off the ground because we didn't have to go through all of that stuff there's no way to account for it you can't account for for uh, uh, you know bribes that you're paying to allow people to get get um, food in and uh, across the border you can't account for um, you know you you gave this money and you lost 20% here to this, but you can, you can trust people that are involved in it. So I, I got a little bit off track of the point. The point is that an organization may have a place at a certain, at a certain stage, right? If you've got $30 million and you're trying to set up a way for you to give away millions and millions of dollars. I think it makes all the sense in the world for you to set up a charitable organization. But if I'm dealing with, with, with lower amounts and 40 to 50 is significant, but still, you know, I think I just want, they can keep the government can keep their money and I want to give where it's going to be impactful because I don't want to support and these, these huge, um, the costs and everything of a huge organization. I want the money to go somewhere where it's gonna do a lot of good and be very, very flexible. And we're so stuck in the the US model of giving that whenever somebody thinks about giving money, it seems like they're always thinking about what charitable organization do I give it to so I can get a tax deduction. Just like when people are thinking about, I'm gonna start a church, the first thing they do is start shopping for real estate. And what this does is it creates these giant um, systems that don't respond and react quickly to the needs, and it doesn't have to be that way. It can be another way, and the other way can have some of the benefits of the large place. Right? There's a place for church for for big. Um, uh, big organizations, big buildings, all that stuff can be fine in its place. But as a primary solution, it doesn't work. Just like as a primary solution for giving, um, it's not as effective. And so if everybody who is wanting to give money away just simply said, who do I know that needs money this month? Who's hurting? Who's out of work? Um, Let me go and, and choose one bum on the street. Let me find one person who has a sick child and give them some money. Let's make some mortgage payments. All of a sudden, that would build relationships. And those relationships are, in my opinion, some of the most valuable thing that comes from giving. Because in relationship, you can put responsibility on somebody because now they're accountable to you. It's not, oh, I received this money from the government or, oh, I got this handout from this international charity. It's, you know, Tim gave me this money. And Tim trusted me enough to give me this money, and that puts a huge weight on somebody when Tim trusts you enough. Now, could they blow it? Of course they could. And then Tim can choose to give or not give the next time. Sometimes somebody blows money, and you give it to them again because you say, I believe in you. You did the wrong thing, but I'm going to come alongside I'm going to help you. And sometimes you don't. But when you just give and you ignore the organizations, you have far more freedom, and it, and it builds a much more resilient community that can actually solve some problems. <sighs> Tim, I know you dropped off during that and uh, that was the best I got, but, but I just say, if it makes sense to give to an organization, give to an organization, but sometimes you can do far more by just giving to an individual and ignoring the tax deduction. So don't get strapped into the tax, the tax world.
4: Yeah, I I came back. Thanks. uh, Thanks so much for that, uh, Joshua. Um, Much appreciated. Uh, I I guess, (laughs) sorry, one last, last follow up here, you know, cause uh, with my personal situation, is as uh, I'm looking to make a transition um in a 2 to 3 years from now and you know I may be in more of an underserved area in the future so um what would you view as the trade off between uh you know giving everything that's in your quote unquote budget you know for giving uh today advice you know storing it up for a day that may never come
0: I think that that's just a, a simple answer that you have to answer before the Lord, uh, and that's where I go back to. It's it's not my responsibility to come up with opportunities. It's my responsibility, to be faithful with the opportunities that I see. And so, if you pray about it and you don't see any opportunities for giving, just save the money. Right? That that there, why why just save the money. But you're the only, you're the one who knows that you're saving it for something that you're going to do in the future. You're the one who knows that, um, that you, you're, you're piling it up and you're saving it with intention. Um, but I see no reason why you should just give if there's no good place to give it just to get rid of it. Again, back to the tax the, the tax deduction. Why do you have to give it in any, any given year? Because you're trying to get rid of it so you can get your, your write-off on this year's taxes. Well, that's silly. If there's, nobody, if there's no need that you can see to give it, then just save it. And wait, and then trust the Lord to open the opportunity up for you. You can segregate it into a separate account, which allows you to persuade yourself that yes, I'm I'm genuinely just simply uh, giving the money away. I'm not going to spend this, but but I see nothing wrong with accumulating it for a period of time until you see an opportunity. And what that does is that increases the opportunities you have to make a bigger uh, a bigger impact. Now you're not stuck in uh, the world where uh, you just had a small amount. Now you can make a bigger impact. Uh, and then just trust the Lord to open up the opportunities for you. I, I, I think that that's the answer every single time. Um, so that's all I got, Tim.
4: All right. Well, uh, thanks again, and uh, keep up the great work there.
0: My pleasure. All right. Pete Pete in Massachusetts, we're back to you, sir. Welcome. How can I serve you today?
8: Hello. Um, They are considering voluntary furloughs at my job, and I'm wondering if that's uh, how you would approach thinking about that.
0: Do you want to be furloughed? Can you use it? Is it helpful to you in some way?
8: Uh, I don't I don't see it as being particularly beneficial. I think the issue is I think they are trying to um, prevent across the board salary reductions. And I think that they are exhausting a lot of the maneuvers to spare cash and are trying to get people out of the salary pool. And this is the only way uh, I think they can do that at this point.
0: Correct. I understand that from the from the entrepreneur and the business manager's perspective. But what about for you? What do you, what would be helpful for you right now?
8: Uh, for me, I don't I don't see how doing that would in any particular way be beneficial. You drop is if everybody's facing salary cuts. Eventually, um, would this somehow breed goodwill, or in some other way, be Beneficial, or do we just keep sort of plugging along?
0: Well, um, I guess my thought is the first goal for your own financial well being during a time of crisis is to keep your job. And so, if this, if you think that taking a voluntary furlough would allow you to keep your job or to keep some income. Then that's why I would prioritize it. I might also quietly go to my manager or you know upper managers if there's a way to do it appropriately and just say, "Listen, you know, I'm willing to take a pay cut. I really like this job, but I will. I know we're hurting. I'm willing to take a pay cut." Something like that can be helpful for you to uh, be able to um, to you know to demonstrate that you're a team player. But I don't know that taking a voluntary furlough helps you to keep your job if by furlough we mean you're not going to be getting you know getting your income does that mean that they're going to well, stop paying uh, you but they're going to pay your benefits
8: correct that's exactly it
0: and are you eligible to file for unemployment if that happens
8: uh i would actually need to look into that i think it uh, i wonder if that would be feasible actually
0: I don't know the answer to that I, I
8: haven't uh, they haven't broadcast that that would be possible. Yeah I, I would assume if it's voluntary, the answer is probably no right um, but um, there's a lot yeah that, that, that would be my assumption, but it certainly would be worth uh, checking into.
0: I guess I, I don't know the exactly, but I, my general theme is I want to keep working. I want to keep helping the company make money. I understand that cuts are coming. Right? I understand that they're hurting. If they're shut down and they're not allowed to do business, I understand that that everyone is hurting. So my answer is, what can I do to keep working? And if they can't pay me, if they can't pay me. I would, if it's a good job and it's something I would want to keep working. I would just say, listen, I know you can't pay me, but can't then fine. But at the end of the day, I would probably. Go in the direction of a layoff, um, so that you can collect unemployment, um, and so that you can be free to go to another opportunity. I know that we don't know how long this this deal is going to go, um, but I, we don't know how long this deal is going to go. So, but I don't like the idea of being furloughed, which means I can't really go for another opportunity. If especially if I can't file for unemployment, if I can't, you know, kind of kind of traps me. But I understand that that might be a bad good. Um, good middle scenario, but I don't see why you would step up and take that rather than just simply waiting for them to say, I'm sorry, we have to furlough you. And so we're going to furlough you. I don't see why it would help you to take it voluntarily.
8: Yeah, that was that was my assessment as well. I was curious if there was some angle I was missing here, but
0: I can understand a voluntary layoff. Like I can understand if there's a severance package, uh, and you say quietly, you know, hey, listen, you know, I, I you, you can lay me off. I would understand that. I understand that there's a voluntary early retirement, and they say if any of you guys would like to retire, we'll start paying you a package of benefits here, and that helps you. I understand if there's a financial compensation, but the voluntary furlough, I don't see how that. Helps. Helps you. Got it. All right. All right. Well, that's that. Great. Thank you, Pete. Glad you are here. All right. Looks like Chris in California. I can't remember. Did I did I cover your question or or uh, uh, is this a new Chris? Uh,
6: not yet. Josh.
0: All right. Go ahead, Chris.
6: Uh, it's it's uh, strange to be talking to you. Awesome to be talking to you. Been listening to you since like 2014. So feels like I know you, but I'm a stranger to you. So that's kind of funny. Uh, At any rate, I'm looking to start a single-member business, um, and I'm trying to figure out S-Corp versus LLC, versus LLC taxed taxed as an S-Corp. I like the idea of not taking all of my income as wages, um, but right now I see two issues with that. Um, The first being reasonable compensation, uh, because almost all of the business revenue Is going to be based on my services. Uh, Having said that, I charge quite a bit more for my services than the average employee in this industry would receive in wages. Um, And then the other issue, uh, more so for this year, is I don't actually plan to make any business profit this year uh, due to uh, high business expenses.
0: Will you have a Um, loss? Although with that, I'm wondering.
6: I have not quite done the full math on that yet. The thing is I'm looking to uh, provide a lot of training for myself out of business revenue. Uh,
0: So in the situation that you're in, do you have other earned income that you can offset, um, that you can use to offset some of the, um, do you have other earned income that the losses would offset for you from a tax perspective?
6: I do. Yes. I have a uh, primary employment.
0: And what is the liability? If you're primarily serv- providing services, do you have significant liability in this new business?
6: Uh, I would say moderate liability.
0: Okay. So from a tax perspective, the the there's a tax answer and then there's a liability answer and that's a practicality answer. So let me walk you through them. Number one, From a tax perspective, if you have a new business that is a genuine business, that you are engaged in. But if that business is expected to have heavy expenses in the beginning, from a tax perspective, your optimal way to run that is simply as a sole proprietorship. Because in a sole proprietorship, you can you can use your business losses to offset your other sources of earned income. So if you're generating $150,000 of earned income from from your income, and then you start a new sole proprietorship that generates $50,000 of losses, those $50,000 of losses reduce your total income to $100,000 of income. And that's a superior option to the reduction down to basis from either an S-Corp or an LLC uh, taxed as an S-Corporation. So if there's a significant tax savings here, then that should be weighed against the benefit of the liability liability. Now, if you engage in a business as a sole proprietor, then of course you lose the liability protections of either a limited liability company or of a corporation. And so you have to weigh how, how liable am I? What are the, what are the real problems here um, with this business that I need to protect against? It's not hard to start a business as a sole proprietorship and then just simply in time grow it into something else uh, and just adjust it along the way. You can adjust fairly easily along the way. Now, with the difference between the S corporation and the LLC? The primary reason why you would choose the LLC is to minimize your corporate record keeping requirements. An S corporation has the same significant bookkeeping and corporate record keeping requirements as a you know just a, a, a C corporation, standard corporation. So you need to file, keep your annual um, shareholders meetings. You need to file your annual reports. You need to have everything done uh, with proper. Corporate formalities with your S corporation. Even though you're saving some money on taxes, you still have the corporate formalities. An LLC gives you the liability protection protection, but a much more streamlined operating environment and much simpler. And so unless you have some other compelling reason to go to an S-Corp, then from a tax perspective, I would just say start a single-member LLC um, and elect to be taxed as an S-Corporation. And that gives you all of the same tax benefits. It gives you the liability benefits, um, and it reduces your corporate uh, record-keeping requirements.
6: Yeah, I would feel kind of silly doing board meetings with myself.
0: Exactly. Exactly. The LLC is your tool there and the fact that you can do the LLC taxed as the S makes it a superior option for most people. Uh, I think there probably are reasons uh, to choose an S corporation in certain industries, but a lot but um but I can't enumerate those at the moment for you. And so from from my perspective it sounds pretty squarely like uh, you're in like an LLC is the, is the ideal solution for you.
6: That's great. Um, I I do like the idea of being able to offset my income, um, by doing as a sole proprietorship, um, the business entity that I would most be working with wants all of its folks to set up LLCs, uh, due to California cracking down on independent contractors. Um, So I don't know if, if that's an option for me.
0: Yeah, I would say that unless it's really significant, um, I would just go ahead and start with the LLC. Uh, it is okay. possible that as a sole proprietor, you can deduct. But where I think that really makes the most sense, a lot of people get nervous with big business losses uh, because you run a risk of triggering an audit. And now you've got to pr- demonstrate that um, you have, that all your expenses are reasonable, ordinary you know, ordinary necessary expenses that are reasonable. And then that, um, depending on what your startup cost can be, that could be, of course, totally pr- provable. But some people take liberty with the expenses that they classify as ordinary and necessary business expenses, and so if all of a sudden you're you're, you're reporting a hundred thousand dollar loss against a four hundred thousand dollar income, uh, there's a big tax savings there, and there's a good chance that that comes under scrutiny, and so uh, I think that that. Number one, there's no reason to be scared of an audit if everything's above board. Um, but in general, uh, probably unless it's a big deal, big potential savings for you, just go ahead and start the LLC, do it from the beginning, and then you can have the the benefits that come from that, from having it all set up right from the beginning.
6: Yeah, I guess uh, one advantage for me is I'm, well, an advantage, I guess, is a bad advantage to have. I'm not looking at $400,000 primary income or... Even a hundred thousand dollars in income in this uh, side business, so I guess that's a a the opposite of a good problem to have. It's a bad advantage to have, but uh, I, I still feel pretty comfortable where I'm at. Yeah, and I, I think,
0: I, but I th- I don't think that that's a reason not to. You know, I've I've coached many people that they start a side business, but it may lose a little bit of money. That you, you if it loses money in the beginning. Happens in a lot of businesses, and if there's min- moderate liability exposure, there's no reason not to just do it. Uh, it's so simple just to file a Schedule C. You can do four businesses in one year. You can do you know zero businesses. Just run a Schedule C and keep your records, and you're good to go. So I don't think that that I don't think that the only reason to do it would be if you have a lot of money. But I do think that you need to just look and say, is this worth? Um, is it worth it to me? Am I actually going to be saving significant money such that this is worth taking the liability? exposure of running it as a sole proprietorship.
6: Okay. And then I am calling from California. Um, I am legally not a California resident. However, I do live here um, and the business would be here. Um, So I'm also looking at ways to keep myself distanced from California. I don't plan to stay here forever. Um, And I don't want California following me forever. I was wondering if you had any insight on that.
0: Why does the business have to be in California?
6: Uh, So the services I provide is instructional services, and that's where my students are.
0: So, I mean, at the end of the day, first, you need to follow the law. Um, And so you need to understand what the law is around California residency and California work and income generated in California and follow the law. Uh, That's the first thing then once you follow the law, you need to understand that California is going to be extremely aggressive in collecting from you. California, New York, in my understanding, are the two most aggressive states in the country, that they are going to get their pound of flesh. And so if you're going to do business with them, then you need to understand you're dealing with a mafia boss, like you're dealing with a tyrant, you're dealing with somebody who is determined and who has a massive infrastructure dedicated to finding out where you are and what you are doing. And they're dedicated to. I mean, they they watch the license plates, right? There's a computer system with automatic license plate readers that registers the state the license plate. So you might have a state for some other uh, from other uh, uh, from a tag from some other place, but at the end of the day, you know they're going to be watching you. And if your business activities are going to are going to be generated in that area, then they're gonna they're gonna be tuned into you. So what you could do is you could do your best to keep um, your your finances out of California, uh, and then just try to keep your own footprint in California as lightly as possible. Um, what I would do if I woke up in your situation, I would first understand the the, the law, uh, understand what. Uh, is required of me. And as long as I know what the rules are, then functionally, I'm going to minimize my footprint in the state to the maximum extent possible. So I will keep my finances outside of any California banks. I will keep my, um, I'll keep my finances in a regional bank from another region, you know, another state, preferably a bank that doesn't even have any branches in California. That minimizes California's ability to seize money from my bank account. I would minimize my exposure inside the state. Uh, I would not create, for example, a long list of electronic transactions proving that I was physically inside the state. Uh, rather, I would try to. Make sure that uh, I had all my transactions that were outside of California were were digital, you know, on a credit card and all my transactions inside California to the, to, to reasonable extent possible are made with physical currency that minimizes my, my presence within the California system. And it makes it much harder for them to make some stupid argument against me that somehow I violated something. And then with regard to my living circumstances, I would, I would not set up, I would not take up residence. Uh, if you need housing in the state, I would take short term, temporary housing and some variation of that. Um, I would minimize flying in and out of California. I'd drive in and out of California um instead of uh flying in and out so that I can uh, just simply moderate um, how much I'm actually there and how what the what the records are. So then I'm gonna anticipate and I'm gonna do these things so that I'm gonna anticipate that they're gonna come after me for I'm gonna if I if I owe taxes, I'm gonna pay the taxes, file the returns, whatever. But then if they come after me and they say, Hey, listen, you owe us all this money, I'm gonna argue back, no I don't, and and I'm gonna have the paper trail arranged in the very best way possible to to demonstrate my case. Um, so, uh, you're dealing with, you're dealing with a tyrant. Um, and so you need to plan and prepare accordingly and whatever the practical application of that to your specific, um, you know, your specific situation is you figure out what of that is applicable, but that's the basic mindset, um, that I would, that I would think about.
6: Okay. So I'm understanding I need to pay $800 for the privilege of doing uh, business in California to the franchise tax board, as well as um income taxes for all of my California generated income. Right. Now with that, is it worth paying another hundred dollars a year to establish this LLC as an out of state LLC?
0: I would think probably so. I mean here here I think you need to you need to solicit um advice from a knowledgeable local expert. I, I don't do, but I, I, I try to stay out of California. Um, and I have no reason to go there. So I understand. I'm not, uh, I have, I have my largest listening audience is in California. Um, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to, 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 to do things. Um, Unnecessarily, but like I, w- I don't know the answer. So w- I would guess that it, if you're trying to demonstrate that you're not a California resident and that you do have some business operations in California, but you want to minimize that, then I think that the natural extension of that would be that the first place that you would establish a business entity would be outside of California. And then for the extent of your business operations that are in California, you would do whatever the California business franchise board wants you to do, whether that's file your $800 fee, pay taxes on your California generated income, do that. But I don't see how you would make an argument, um, just having a California LLC and not uh, a foreign LLC, I can't see how you would win that argument uh, that all your money wasn't there. Because you know, let's flip it around. Okay, you're spending most of your time in California. You file a California LLC, and you do some. You two have twenty percent of your business in California, but you have eighty percent of it elsewhere. Well, California wants tax on all your income. Um, so that's how that's how their system works, in my understanding. So you definitely would want your LLC established in your state of residence. Residence, and then just simply file the appropriate tax forms for that specific um, uh, that specific for, for that the business is generated there.
6: Great, that is very helpful.
0: Yeah, just think about how you can how you can pay Caesar what you owe Caesar, but not let Caesar into the rest of your life. So again, even things like the California um, Tax Board is very aggressive. And so I would not have bank accounts in California. I would not. I would make sure that all my business banking was done in another region. Uh, and there's no reason why you need business bank accounts in California. But if you have business bank accounts in California, it makes it much simpler for the California um, government to come and place a lien on your bank accounts and just take money out of them. And so you're dealing with an extremely aggressive Uh, tax collector and so you should protect yourself appropriately pay them what you owe them but protect yourself so that they can't try to get more money than what you do actually legitimately owe them from you great thank you my pleasure all right final call of the day matt welcome to the show how can i serve you today sir
7: hey joshua um i have a couple of questions for you um but uh, I'll, I'll try to do my best to summarize them. Uh, one of them is about uh, about jobs. I actually uh, I'm in a, a lucky position, I should say, compared to others, uh, where I actually have two job offers I'm currently considering between, uh, and uh, I'm having a tough time trying to make up my mind between them. Uh, and I've uh, spoken to a few of my mentors and and my uh, and my girlfriend and, uh, and other people I trust and. And, and and you know I keep playing back and forth. So I just want to kind of get to your thoughts as well. Uh, if you want, I can just summarize them really quickly for you. Yes, go ahead. Um, so one of them is uh, uh, is, is is a uh, is a senior finance officer for uh, for a European bank uh, that's got uh, operations out here in the in the LA area. This is going to be their U.S. headquarters, um, and uh, they're looking for you know like I said, a senior finance officer. Um, so uh, I won't be head- headquarters, like like I won't be HO uh, overall, of course, at the European Bank. Uh, but the good part about that is that I get, uh, uh, you know, they're going to bump me up to uh, the North American CFO position the next uh, couple of years, uh, which is great. Uh, at least that's what, that's what the outgoing CFO is telling me that that's what, that's what he wants me in for, because uh, he's kind of made us mind to leave and uh, he just needs somebody to groom and take on the job. Uh, the pro is that, you know, well, I've always wired for the CFO title and and gears and here it's, in, it's in grass, so that's great. Uh, the money's not too bad. It's it's, uh, it's it's not great, but it's like you know, low two space and then mid twos uh, all in. Uh, they don't they don't tend to pay much. The European banks. Um, so, so so that's that. The other the other option is is a, is a U.S. bank, uh, a mid-sized bank. Again, based on the Greater LA area. Uh, they are they are in a different space. They're actually high growth. Uh, uh, they actually do, you know, uh short term lending uh to uh uh to uh to personal consumers. Uh so you know, like like, like, like if you need a loan, uh short term loan, then you'd just you'd go to them. Um so over here I'll be second in command to the CFO. Uh they're privately owned right now, private equity owned, and uh, you know, they're go public in the next five years, but who knows how that's gonna work out. So I'll be second in command and I expect to say second in command at least until the IPO happens and then if the CFO uh, Decides to move up or whatever, then I get a chance over there. So it's kind of delaying the the, the CFO role, the CFO uh, experience, but it's, uh, it it pays a lot more. The 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 you know the all income including stock and everything comes up to in the in, in, in the low threes. Uh, so you know, uh, and, and and then of course if you go to IPO, then that's going to be worth a lot more. So, so those are kind of the options. Uh, I've, I've kind of currently said yes to the to the first role. Uh, given that that's what my eventual goal is, even, even if money is a little bit shy right now, uh, I'm not really, you know, struggling for money. Thank God. And, uh, you know, uh, but, but what I'm finding now is that because of COVID, they are, they are unable to give me an offer letter just yet. They're really working hard on it. Uh, the HR over here is working really hard with the, with the European head office to get me that offer letter ASAP, but they're struggling right now. So that's where I am. I'm not really sure what to do.
0: On the other side of either of these jobs, what's next? What's your next ambition after either of these jobs?
7: Uh, that's a good question, Josh. Uh, so, uh, on, on the on the first opportunity, uh, the next step would be like like I know that, that this role won't be a full-time CFO full role. This is going to be a, you know uh, uh, more of a push-down role from from corporate in, in Europe. Uh, they're going to push down things that they want done over here, and I'll be more of a doer. If you may, so I want to pull some more, pull some CFO role. That's what I'll be looking for next at a, at you know, at an equal size or a bigger brand name place. Uh, for the second opportunity, the idea is for me to take over the CFO role at that place because so I've kind of spoken to the CFO, and, and, and he has got a bigger plan for himself. He just wants to cash out on this uh, on this IPO and then move on to to bigger and better place for himself. So uh, the role over there would be to take on that.
0: My initial instinct is your opportunities at the European Bank are going to be much more limited than the opportunities at the American Bank. Because if you are part of the leadership team of a fledgling North American operation, basically you could be amputated at any time. You know, they could say, hey, this didn't work out. We're going to end the North American operation. And your only opportunity, you know, would be to say, I want to continue with you, but now I have to move to Europe and and be involved in the European operation. And I think that your comment about being a kind of a corporate employee, a doer, is interesting and probably true and worth considering. Whereas if, at the American uh, bank, it would seem like there's more opportunity to really grow um, because it's it might be bigger, a little bit more pay, which is nice, um, but bigger and gives you the opportunity to be involved with an American operation that has its target set on growing. If this bank is going to IPO, they're as part of their IPO sales pitch, they're going to be talking about how much growth there is, which means you have the opportunity to be involved in a growing operation. Operation and the financial incentive for the entire management team is to keep growth just as hot as possible in order to pump up that IPO valuation so that they can cash out at a very high uh, with a very nice payday. Um, the so in general because of that it would just seem like the growth prospects are more limited with the European bank than with the American uh, with the American bank. But my thought was. Um, you said that the European Bank might have you with you know CFO on your business card faster. Which possibly yeah. could be necessary for you to move on to the next company, and so that's the that's the counter argument that occurs to me is if you choose the European bank, yeah. let's say a couple of years from now, you can say, "Hey, look, I've been the CFO of this banking operation for a couple of years. Um, you may know that it's been less of a traditional CFO role and more of an employee role, or more of a doer role, but that might position you very nicely to now target um, employment." as a a CFO at a much larger American bank and can can provide you with an opportunity to pivot into a higher paid position. So, I'd be happy to take a, you know, a comp package of 250 instead of 325 if that meant that there's a better chance two or three years from now that you could make that jump from CFO at a bank where the comp package is 250 to CFO at a bank where the comp package is 750. And so if that experience is what's missing on your resume, that CFO experience then i would tend to wait the one that has a faster pathway into the the cfo on the business card higher um so those are the two basic arguments that occur to me do you think the european bank would actually like they want they're obviously wanting to expand in north america do you think they have good growth prospects
7: they do they've actually been here uh for uh for 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 actually decades now so they're pretty well established they are you know uh, well to do and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely not at all concerned. with one single bit that they that they want to move operations out of here. Uh, they deal institutional only. So, you know, the, 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 clients are other big banks and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so they're not going anywhere anytime soon. So that, that was my concern when you raised that earlier. Uh, but, uh, so, so, you know, like, like, like what you mentioned about pivoting this into the next role. I've actually been talking to some of my exec recruiter friends, uh, about, uh, you know, what that would mean and what their thoughts were and, and and they were kind of saying the same thing that you might be able to pivot that uh the only thing is that the one exact recruiter who who me me that other role the 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 second role the American bank role uh, he is uh you know and and and, and, and I might say that he's a bit biased of course uh, but, but he's but he's adamant that that this first role is is uh, is, is is just not going to set you up well uh, you know that your piece uh that that I'm discounting it, it 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 more than uh more than I like not discounting it enough as much as I should because uh uh you know it means that I don't have any control uh, I'm I'm not really much of a CFO other than for the letters behind my name
0: is the german bank uh, sorry is the is the european bank german
7: uh it uh it, it, it it's not Okay.
0: Do you get along with the culture, like the business culture of that European culture? Do, like, do you, does does it work well for you, or do you find yourself not fitting well into that culture?
7: But, uh, you know what—that's that, interesting with you that you mentioned that. I have met uh, quite a few of the people who I'll be working for and working with, and uh, so who'll be working for me. Uh, you know, uh, at least over here, the culture is is, is very much North American, and uh, and they tend to keep that. Just like I said, they've they've had obviously for decades, and and the CEO is very much American and they run the shop over here, a very an American shop.
0: What about the finances of the bank? Um, which of them do you think, do you, do you think either of them is on a risky financial footing right now? Uh, do you feel like both of them are, are solid?
7: Oh yeah, absolutely solid. The, the P1 is, is is backed by uh, by a by, by large pension plan. So, you know, they got deep pockets over there, even though they're private. And then uh, for the, uh, for the other one, they're they're probably bank and and again, deep pockets, they actually don't deal with consumers they deal with like a separate at usual time uh, and and you know their business model is uh, is, is such that they uh, you know I don't, I don't expect them to have issues uh too many issues I think such
0: Well, I can understand why you're struggling with it, right? The hardest decisions to make uh, are always between good ones. Yeah, between good ones. If you have multiple good options or you have multiple bad options, those are always your hardest decisions to make. Um, the easy decisions are where you just have one good or you know or one bad the, then everything is is relatively simple. The only thought I have is is try to get a letter in hand, try to get a formal offer in hand from from whichever one will give you a formal offer in hand first, and then see if you can use that as a point of negotiating leverage for the other opportunity and so it 's possible that um, if you go to the European bank, like maybe that's your primary choice and you like the opportunity there, but their comp package is, uh, you know, 250. Uh, and you can get a letter in from the U.S. bank that, that says, listen, we're more at 320, then you can take that back and say, I've got another offer here. Um, I really prefer you guys, but the pay is a little bit light. See if, you can, see if you can negotiate for a higher pay or vice versa. So to me, that seems like um, the way I would approach it is I'd continue to pursue both of them, see which one can get you a formal offer um, as quickly as possible, then try to use that as, as a leverage point against the other ones. And and then i would think carefully about which of these is going to position me better for that next job after this one that i'm that i'm targeting because in your industry there's not. There's probably not going to be a long way up at either of these companies. Um, you're no. you're going to work at one of these companies for you know an appropriate amount of time, whatever that is, three years, four years. You're going to try to create your turnaround story, deliver on the results that you're tasked to deliver for the board and for the shareholders, and then with that turnaround story, with that success story, with your with with your division squared away, you're now going to try to leverage that work with your next opportunity you're going to try to be to to you know p- t- sell that story to an executive recruiter and see if they can place you in where there's a much bigger opportunity and so that's probably the primary um the primary thing I would consider i'm happy to walk away yeah. from $50,000 of comp if i'm convinced that the lower paying job is going to is going to position me better but i would really analyze it carefully based upon that metric yeah
7: yeah that's great that you mentioned those things Josh. Uh, you know, just just add some color to that uh, um the the first fall uh the, I've already tried to pivot uh the, the, the other role uh the higher paying role to the to the first option and and, and told them about that they weren't really buged they were they were already at uh you know at at capacity which kind of again shows how much uh, you know flexibility is in the local hands in terms of what they want to do. Uh, so, so they they went back. They they actually did bump it a little bit more, but they they kind of hit a hit, a, hit a brick wall at a certain point. So, as, so as I know that this is not going to be a long-term play. This is going to be like an appropriate time, two, three, four, five years max, and then and then pivot that to something else. Uh, the other thing about the offer letter timing. Uh, the second second option uh, because they're privately owned, and you know, I already have all the approvals, the offer letters, just a click away. Uh, that I know, like, like, like the exec recruiter over there was, was very eager to say that I can have this in your hands as early as Monday. I mean, this upcoming Monday, even though it's Easter Monday, you can have it in the hands right then and there. Because so, so I have all the approvals. I've, you know, passed all the checks and balances. They to, to just be, to hit the print button. Uh, once, once I give them the go ahead, uh, which, which is what I'm sort of, you know, uh, dilly-dallying on a little bit saying that no, actually has this other role. I, I've been very transparent with them, uh, about the other role as well. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately i'm just stuck. i'm i i'm actually also uh i've also reached out to the first option and and asked to speak to cfo over there just so i can uh address some of the concerns directly with him about you know that's just the coronavirus change the timing of when he leaves or uh you know uh, is, is the to be comfortable with having a change happen uh in, in, a, in a time of you know global uh global crises uh and so on so forth so i'm i just haven't been able to get a hold of him given quarter end right now uh so you know there's there's a lot of unknowns, uh, and and I'm just stuck uh, between the two good options.
0: Here's the last thing that occurs to me. Have you ever worked at a company that has uh, IPO'd while you're working there? No. That could be a really interesting experience uh, for you and possibly very valuable for you, especially as a finance professional. Um, and so that would be, to me, something worth seriously considering. Uh, if you had the chance to work there through an IPO, there possibly could be some comp for you based upon that IPO. But it would expose you working for a chief financial officer and being responsible for significant amounts of the finances of the company, that would expose you to some really unique work experience that you probably wouldn't get with the European bank. And that could be very interesting to you in the future um, and, a, and a really fascinating part of your resume that would uh, set you apart from many other people and so consider that as well consider what it would be like to work at a bank through the ipo process and then what that that um experience would mean to you in terms of your overall career
7: no i I, again like like, i really appreciate that inside josh i mean i consider that uh you know uh the and and of course what you said definitely makes sense the counter argument to that of course is you know, IPO. Uh, you know, predictions are 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 made every single day in, in California. Uh, you know, especially when these are the IPO is five years down, nobody knows what the economy is going to be like five years down. And you know, uh, given that they are backed by a deep bucket, it, it won't be like they'll be hurting for cash and they and they have to get this IPO, otherwise, you know, they'll be they'll be struggling. Uh, this can go out uh, until until the pension plan decides the valuation is just right for them, and and that can mean you know five years. Ten years, or it could be in three years, and we just don't know that. Uh, so, you know, uh, interestingly, you mentioned that, but a, but a lot of tech recruiters also warn me about, you know, uh, uh, very aggressive IPO predictions, and, and and to be wary of those kind of claims, and you know, take them with uh, with uh, with, with, a, with a bit of a grain of salt.
0: Well. It sounds like you need to just flip a coin. <laughs> yeah,
7: exactly. That's where I think I am. No, that's great. At least, at least I didn't have a chance to talk it through with you. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't seem like I'm missing anything. Indeed, indeed. Sometimes just flip
0: a coin. And what, here's what you can do. Um, here's my recommendation. Flip a coin, say heads, heads is Europe, uh, tails is uh, American, and um, flip the coin and say, go for it. And then if all of a sudden you have this sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach after you flip that coin and the sinking feeling tells you, that you you know that you uh, made the wrong choice, uh, then just pay attention to that. Uh, sometimes flipping the coin and, and committing to something that is as silly as that can help you to. Uh you know, can help you to know what you really wanted. There have been things I've started doing even recently where I'm like, "Eh, I'm not sure if I want this. And I started the process and all of a sudden, um, due to a few different factors, it was ripped away from me. I'm like, no, I really wanted that. And it dials up the, uh, the intensity for me. Thank you all for listening to today's show. I am grateful for your being here. Um, grateful for uh grateful for your patronage uh if you'd like to join me on next week on the q a show go to patreon.com radical personal finance sign up there to support the show patreon.com radical personal finance here to work with you day by day as we go through this uh unfolding uh coronavirus experience this is momentous days and and uh i hope that you are taking notes and paying attention Lots of stuff for us to talk about with it from a financial perspective. Uh, I've been a little bit silent on a couple things. For example, I I, last week um, I spent a long time trying to prepare an outline on the Cares Act. And the problem is just that there's this piece of legislation, but every single hour something substantial is changing with regard to the details of it. And then it's just such a nightmare that the rollout of it is such a it's gonna it is a disaster already, and it's gonna be a disaster. Um, I wish it weren't, but I'm, I'm persuaded it is, and so it just makes it very hard to create any kind of lasting uh, content, which is why that show didn't get happen. I worked on it and worked on it, and worked on it, and I felt like almost anything I'd say was basically gonna be undone in no time and it was fairly stupid uh, so I'll, I'll keep doing it when I can um, but that was uh, that was all I got Thank you for listening have a great weekend and I will be back with you soon.